Okay, so uh, let's, get the, uh, let's get the party started. So uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to, uh, the L- welcome to LSE for tonight's event. I'm John Van Rienen. I'm the uh, Ronald Coase uh, Professor and a school professor in the Department of Economics. And I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Noam Yuckman to speak with us this evening. Uh, this event forms part of the LSE's Shape the World series, which is held in the run-up to the LSE Festival a week-long series of events taking place on the 2nd to 7th of March. These events, which are free to attend and open to all, will explore how social sciences can make the world a better place. And if you're interested in the full programme, it's going to be available online in January. So I'm sure, as you, as you know, Noam is a, a professor uh, of managerial economics and strategy at LSE Department of Management. Um, you know, I'm very happy to have him as a colleague here. Uh, his, his research is very wide. It covers political economy, economic history, labour economics. Um, Noam joined us after receiving the British Academy's prestigious global professorship, and tonight marks his inaugural lecture as a member of the LSE community. So uh, the subject of uh, today's talk is data. Uh, data has become a vital commodity in the production of goods and services. This is particularly seen with new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Access to data is crucial in the development of these new technologies. And whilst we might think that innovation is hindered in authoritarian regimes, uh, as we might hear, uh, they in fact benefit from having access to very large amounts of data, which is restricted by laws and perceptions of privacy and many other societies like our own. So tonight, Noam's going to speak to us how authoritarian regimes are leveraging this position to become world leaders in technology, innovation, and uh, artificial intelligence. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is uh, hash LSE Despotic Data. Um, I'm going to ask you to put your phones on silent as to not disrupt the event. I've done mine already. And uh, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> which we hope they won't be. So after the lecture, there's going to be a chance for you to put your questions to Noam. Um, I think Noam's going to speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we'll kind of open it up. Um, and let me just uh, hand over to Noam. And Thank you. Welcome to the LSE. Thanks. thanks so much. All right, thanks so much for having me. Um, I, I have to give credit to the, the marketing department for the great title. Um, they said it better than, than I could. Um, so, so what's, what's the background for this? Um, the, the background here is, is sort of thinking um, from the perspective of, of a political economist um, in 2019 and, and looking at a literature on what drives economic growth or the success of nations. Um, and as of 2019, you know, as, as recently as the, the February 2019 Journal of Political Economy, one of the, the leading journals um, in the economics discipline, we have a very uh, simple and straightforward statement. Democracy does cause growth. Um, this paper was written by some of my own favorite economists, including my, my dissertation advisor, Jim Robinson, um, one of my closest friends, Suresh Naidu. I like this paper very much. Um, I think there's a very compelling logic in this paper um, and in this book that, that Jim Robinson and, and Darona Samoglu, one of the LSE's most eminent uh, alumni um, wrote in 2012 
Um, the logic here is that, that more inclusive political institutions will support economic development, growth, and innovation. And, and again, the logic is very simple and compelling. If you don't have inclusive political institutions, if you have a sort of a powerful incumbent elite, that powerful incumbent elite will potentially be tempted to predate on firms. That might lead firms ex ante not to make investments, not to innovate. If they do invest and innovate, the existing incumbent elite may choose to, to try to limit that innovation in order to prevent the rise of, of potential challengers. That simple logic suggests you need to have some amount of, of political openness to challenge the elite, which will then guarantee some amount of economic openness, the ability of new entrants, new ideas, innovations um, to challenge old elites and, and produce economic growth. Um, this is a powerful logic. This book describes settings across you know, many millennia, in fact, um, and around the world, in which this logic has a great deal of explanatory power. Um, and yet, um, there are, are questions that, that are raised from a look at, at history. So this is you know, a funny formatted um, set of slides. This one was not on me, I must say, uh, but, but we'll take it. The, the, the shape of a bullet point isn't that important. This essentially is saying questions from history. What about growth alongside coercion? So it's not always the case that we see growth in these nice, open, inclusive, politically liberal and democratic societies. We often see growth that takes place alongside some of the most coercive, extractive regimes um, and, and economic systems that have existed um, in, in history. Um, and this is not true for just sort of a random collection of events. It's true for, for some of the most important episodes of growth um, that, that any, um, any economist would, would look back at history and care about. So the rise of the British Empire was profoundly shaped by the use of the Royal Navy um, which won wars, again using coercive violence, to open up trade routes. Um, the, the British um, internal system of land distribution was shaped by enclosures, which in some cases forced people off the land in order to make uh, farming more productive. That, that's, that's coercion. Certainly the British Empire was not a democratic place, um, you know, not, at, not before the Glorious Revolution and not immediately after the Glorious Revolution um, either. Um, if you look at the rise of, of uh, growth in the United States, another sort of prototypical case of, of the rise of modern capitalism in the Industrial Revolution, the U.S. was more democratic um, as it went through its, its period of industrialization. It was certainly not completely democratic, and it certainly relied on a huge amount of productive coercion. Um, slavery may not have been a necessary condition at all for America's industrialization, but it certainly was a productive institution for generating cotton, which then fed the textile sector in the United States um, and the United Kingdom as well. If you look at the Asian tigers after World War II, um, what was known as, as the growth miracle until China made that miracle look, look relatively modest, um, that growth miracle began under non-democratic regimes. Um, and it wasn't the case that their economic playing field was left wide open. Rather, the East Asian tigers' governments picked winners and used the power of the government specifically to support certain winners at the expense of others. Um, it wasn't a, a case of, of, of 
openness and inclusion economically or politically. Um, and then, of course, modern China. And so, you know, five years ago, six years ago, when I, when I started thinking about um, Hong Kong's democratic movement um, and talked to people in Hong Kong about democracy, um, at the time, many people in Hong Kong were, were at least very cautious about democracy. And one reason they were cautious was that they looked across what some would call a border and, and they saw a Chinese economy that was growing remarkably under an authoritarian government. Um, you, you know, frustratingly, from, from a normative perspective, for a Westerner who wanted to talk about democracy in Hong Kong, um, I met people who, who certainly did not believe that democracy always caused growth. Um, and, and when you look at China, it's clear you can grow remarkably quickly um, under uh, a set of authoritarian political institutions, and those authoritarian political institutions involve a great deal of coercion economically as well, whether it's forcing people off land to build infrastructure, whether it's forcing people off land to establish new factories, whether it's, again, sort of playing favorites um, in some form of quid pro quo, um, the Chinese economy is, is not at all inclusive. Um, so what, what you realize when you look at history is that while it may very well be the case that, that inclusive institutions and democracy can be very conducive to growth and may in some cases cause growth, it's really important to understand also those cases when coercive institutions are, are playing a role in promoting growth. How does that happen? How, how is it the case that a powerful state that has the coercive power of the state, the ability to use violence, how, why is it the case that, that pri the, the private sector is able to grow and, and even harness that power? In what cases do, does that happen? Um, the, the key questions, in a sense, uh, to, to answer, to, to determine what's going on are, one, like, you know, how does the state choose its business model? It's clear that states that are coercive and that use their coercive power to pick winners often get it wrong. I'm not saying by any means that, that every time a state tries to, to be Japan and pick its, its sectoral champions or South Korea that it's going to be successful. It often fails miserably. Um, so an important question is who kind of gets invited into the partnership with the state? How does that process occur? Um, and once you have some partnership formed, what tends to align incentives? Um, these are huge open questions. I'm not going to have answers to these questions today, just to be clear. But these are the questions that we have to begin to answer if we want to understand whether, whether sort of growth under coercion is something that is, is, is something systematic that we can understand. Is it an accident? Is it a, a, an occurrence that occurs under a set of political institutions, under a set of constraints? Um, what is it about those episodes of growth under coercion that made them work rather than becoming the cases that spectacularly fail. Um, in this case, we're going to kind of pick a winner. Um, we're going to uh, pick a, a situation where we see an alignment of interests between a powerful coercive state, um, in this case focusing on, on the People's Republic of China, and a particular sector, data-intensive um, technological development in the AI sector, um, in particular where, where AI innovation and authoritarian government's incentives are, are tightly aligned, and their interests are aligned enough that we have a state that has clearly picked this winner um, and, and is supporting that winner and is not in a situation where it's likely to prey on that winner, um, which means that this relationship can be sustained for a long time, leading to long-term growth in this sector. Just to note, 
Um, this is part of sort of early stage research um, with David Yang and Martin Baraha. Um, and, and there's a, a, a sort of work in progress um, called Data Autocracy in the Direction of Innovation, Evidence from China's AI Industry. And you can again see that the marketing department is better at titles than I am. Okay, so, so the plan for, for today is, is to start with a very simple conceptual framework that, that describes like, what is data in, in intensive innovation, meaning the, the type of innovation that occurs in the AI sector, and, and how does it look in authoritarian settings relative to other settings? What sets that intersection apart from others? Um, that conceptual framework generates some predictions about what innovation should look like in authoritarian countries. Um, and then I'll test those predictions or give you some evidence consistent with those predictions um, using some macro data, some micro data, um, and then I'll conclude with some discussion of, of what I see as some important policy implications. So. Ugh. The, the, the conceptual framework begins um, with, with the statement that, that AI innovation is data intensive. Data is part of the production process of AI innovation. And, and that, I, I don't know, is, is maybe obvious after a few minutes of thinking, but maybe not obvious before you think about it. Um, you might think of AI innovation as people writing better algorithms to make better predictions. It turns out that many of the really big leaps forward in, in the, the development of AI technologies weren't leaps that occurred because people developed new algorithms, but were leaps because people had access to much, much bigger data sets. Um, I am not an expert on this, just to be clear. I'm not a computer scientist, but this is what, what becomes clear as you read the history of, of computer science. Um, so some examples include speech recognition, chess mastery, translation. Um, sort of the, the literature on, on the history of innovation um, is, is sort of full of, of these examples of, of AI taking major leaps forward, not because of algorithmic advances, but because of access to big data. Um, I want to note just you know, almost as, as an aside, but, but this is the type of innovation that's, that's extremely general. It's not, it's not an innovation that is likely to generate a few products. It's, it's a general purpose technology that will shape essentially every sector that we work in um, and every aspect of our lives. So if a country like China becomes extremely successful in, in producing AI innovation, that doesn't mean that, that China becomes more successful in one narrow segment of, of, of the production function. It means that it potentially becomes more productive across the entire frontier. Um, and, and many economists and, and strategists have sort of focused on the wide-ranging implications of, of AI technology for our society over the coming decades. Um, so what's different about this sort of data-intensive innovation in an authoritarian country as opposed to a more open society? And John has already hinted at this. Um, you know, the, the first thing that, that we would point to is differences in the demand for data by the authoritarian state. So authoritarian states have shifted, many of them anyway, into a model not of controlling behavior through threat, through sticks so much, not so many overt sticks, but much more through observation and prediction um, of behavior. Very, very close monitoring, the collection of rich data to predict behavior and avoid problems in the first place rather than using sort of their coercive powers ex post. Um, this is something that, that some political economists have focused on. The Wall Street Journal calls um, AI part of the autocrat's new toolkit. Um, so authoritarian states demand a lot of data. And, and crucially, that is what aligns 
the incentives of, of the, the authoritarian state with these private firms. So from the, the private firm's perspective, if you are a private firm that has the best AI technology, you know that the state wants your technology, not just today, but tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. The state wants to, to sustain the, the very best AI it can because it's crucial to the preservation of, of the authoritarian regime. Knowing that the state wants to preserve your technology means that the, the, that the private firm is not so concerned about predation. On the other hand, is it the case that the incumbent elite is worried about empowering some new tech class, some new set of, of AI oligarchs who might overthrow them? Well, you know, not as much as, as some other technologies, in the sense that these tech oligarchs essentially want exactly what the, the political oligarchs want, which is they just want access to a ton of data today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day, because as you'll see in a minute, using that data to train their technologies doesn't just support the authoritarian state, it also is an input into better private sector technology. And so if you think about this again from the perspective of a Chinese firm, they might not love living in an authoritarian state, but they love having access to that data and they love the competitive advantage it gives them relative to their, their private sector competitors um, in, in other countries. This is the data gap. Um, or one, one expression of the data gap. So these are public surveillance cameras in millions, 2017 and then projected in 2020. Um, you know, this is six billion uh, surveillance cameras in China in 2020. Um, eventually we're going to try to use some, some information on, on the distribution of surveillance cameras, it's something we're, we're collecting. We don't quite have it yet, but, but this is an incredible source of, of competitive advantage that comes from working with the Chinese state. Uh, you can see what the U.S. has. It's dwarfed in comparison. Um, London, London's not so bad or good on this metric, depending on how you look. Um, okay, so um, the, the second element that makes... Uh, AI and data-intensive innovation different in an authoritarian regime, again touched on by, by John, is, is something like the idea of repugnance, um, which, which is a, a term from, from an Al Roth paper, um, and probably others have used it as well, um, some element of repugnance in, in transactions over data. So what's meant by repugnance is essentially um, goods and services that shouldn't be transacted in markets for moral reasons. Um, and of course, different people, different societies will have different normative preferences over this stuff. Um, and some data, we're fine with buying and selling. Other data, like our faces, our social security numbers, maybe our genes, maybe other things, um, we, we are much more uncomfortable about private firms collecting, governments collecting, and so on. Um, in authoritarian regimes and in authoritarian environments, that, that repugnance is much less of a binding constraint. And, and there are several reasons why that's the case. Um, you know, for one, you, know, you, have some, you, you have very little privacy in general in authoritarian societies. So you know, kids who grow up in China kind of understand that there are books that, that keep, keep sort of tabs on them and track them from childhood until later in life you know you're being monitored. And, and if you're gonna be monitored relatively closely anyway, like let a private firm collect the data too and at least provide some public, some, some services for it. Um, you know, it's, you, you know you're being monitored, you're desensitized to it. If a private firm collects your data, you're happy because you get something for it. In addition, you can imagine sort of an endogenous process 
through which authoritarian states actually try to shape preferences to get people to become desensitized. So I don't have much evidence on this. It's simply sort of a, a theoretical point that you know, a, a, an authoritarian state will tend to downplay concerns about privacy um, and tend to, to sort of highlight the benefits of a society where people are able to conveniently do mobile payments, where you're able you know, to show up at a government building, just smile at the, at, at the camera, and then your driver's license pops out or whatever it is. Like, that is really convenient, but it's also a little bit creepy. Um, so from, from a Westerner's perspective, of course. So... Um, you know, and, and, and finally, you know, even if, if there is a strong demand for privacy, it's not necessarily the case that it needs to be respected to the same extent in an, in an authoritarian regime as it would need to be in a democracy. Um, and this is just one, one uh, photo of the screen grab of, of an FT article uh, that, that starts to get it like, so I, I think most Westerners starts to get quite uncomfortable where you have cameras that are trying to predict your emotions and stuff like that. So, so emotion recognition is China's new surveillance craze. Um, systems installed in Xinjiang. Um, and, and so this is you know, part of, of what's, what's you know, the frontier in, in AI is not just predicting who you are, but how you feel, which is like really profound actually, um, and powerful as a technology. It's you know, potentially fantastic um, from a business perspective. Um, it's potentially very uncomfortable from the perspective of, of a private citizen who wants their emotions to stay private. Um, so you know, the, the, the last element that, that's important isn't you know, sort of specific to authoritarian states at all, but it has differential consequences in these authoritarian states given the first two items. And that is a, a point that others have made before, which is that data are, are potentially non-rival. So the fact that I'm using a data set to train an algorithm doesn't prevent you from using exactly the same data set. That's not to say data can't be excludable. Data can very much be excludable. Google has a lot of data. Facebook has a lot of data that they're, they're not going to share with other firms. It's, it's excludable. But if they were to share that data with firms, it wouldn't diminish the quality of Google's data. In that sense, it's, it's non-rival. What does that mean in, in this setting? Well, it means that, that some inputs when, when you engage with sort of a, a government and you get an input from the government, you will use up that input, perhaps providing public services for the government. In that case, the government service provision would crowd out private sector development. But because data is a non-rival input, you can have AI innovation that yields benefits in the private sector just alongside the, the, the benefits it's producing for the authoritarian state in the public sector. There is no loss of the data's quality in its transfer of use from providing monitoring technology and surveillance technology for the government transferred to developing private sector technologies um, for consumers. So how does that work? Firms access data from the autocratic state to produce monitoring technology. For example, um, analyzing facial data from all of those cameras. Analyzing all those faces for the government agency, a, a police force or something like that, provides monitoring services for the government. But that same data set can be used to train a private sector product. Um, and, and that private sector product will be better than an equivalent private sector product developed in a context in which there wasn't access to that massive data set possessed by the authoritarian state. Um, so what does that sort of mechanism look like in, in a government procurement setting? Um, this is a little bit redundant, but just to say, how, how, how does government procurement work? 
Autocratic states demand some mix of data and software to produce monitoring. That's what the autocratic state ultimately wants, is the good that is monitoring. It uses a mix of data and software. The software typically come from the private sector. The private sector firms that provide software to the government then get access to that data, which again is non-rival, and then they use it to develop private sector innovations. Um, for example, using facial recognition data um, to develop facial recognition technologies that, that are useful not just for the police forces that are collecting the data, um, but also for a range of payment apps um, and, and other facial recognition applications from banks um, to public service provision. Okay, so what would you expect from this sort of um, process. You would expect, first, more data-intensive AI innovation in authoritarian states, but not just more, um, more, more innovation uh, of, of AI uh, in general. You also expect specifically, and maybe surprisingly, private sector AI innovation to be, to be stronger um, in authoritarian states. So this, this you know, the, the first one might feel a little bit mechanical. The second one seems very surprising and relies again on this non-rivalry of data. The third one is, is more a within-firm prediction that, that firms will specifically begin to develop their new products after they get a government contract. Because the government data is a crucial input into their production function for new innovations and private sector technologies, it's key to get access to that data first. Now, of course, you have to have some product to get the government contract in the first place, but, but we expect to see sort of a boom of product development and innovation after a government contract is received. And then finally, given the, these sort of repugnance aspects of, of data analysis um, in, in authoritarian countries, we expect that there will be a differential supply of talented people into the more sort of data re repugnant, data-intensive sectors uh, among researchers from authoritarian countries. So put another way, if you come from, from a country in which repugnant data is not you know, valued particularly socially um, and it's, it's difficult to apply economically, there will be less supply of individuals working with that data. If you're in an authoritarian country where values maybe are of a particular form, where privacy isn't given a lot of weight, then it's less costly to go into, into sectors where repugnant data is being used. And by the way, you also expect higher market returns to working on, on that sort of data because that data will be more widely available. So this last prediction is really about where, where, where should we see labor market action? And, and we'll have a little bit to say about that. Okay, so macro-level evidence. Um, it's macro-level evidence. It's coarse. It's not going to be particularly convincing in a, in a causal way, but it's illustrative. So take, take a look for, for what it's worth. Um, I, I'm an applied micro guy, so I feel like I have to apologize. Um, but, 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 the, but the patterns are, are suggestive and, and I think interesting um, and, and certainly powerful. So just to give you a sense of, of differential AI innovation in an authoritarian country like China. It's not the case that China has become a world leader in R&D. It's not the case that China is a world leader in innovation in general or in research in general. It has, as we note here, less than one third of the total volume of, of, of US scientific research, less than a third of the US. But when you look at AI paper output over a 20 year period, China exceeds the US. So China isn't a, a, a research superstar across the board, 
It is the world leader specifically in AI research. Now let's look at highly cited research. It's not just the case that China's producing a lot of quantity, it's producing quality too. And, and when you look at highly cited research um, in China uh, versus, uh, versus other, other countries, um, you see that China began to overtake uh, the U.S. starting in 2012 um, and has continued since. And, and so what we mark in 2012 is, is sort of this deep learning revolution in AI, which is very much a data-driven um, revolution in, in thinking about AI. So ever since 2012, data-intensive AI at the highest level has really been, been concentrated in China, and China's beginning to dominate the world. How about across countries? What do we see? So here we take the, the top 30 countries in terms of their GDP, and we just run a regression and, and show a scatter plot, plotting the share of AI in CS, meaning computer science publications. So again, our point isn't that China's a world leader in innovation. We're not saying that China's even a world leader in computer science research and innovation. We're saying China should be a world leader and, and more authoritarian countries should be relatively dominant in data-intensive innovation. So AI relative to other computer science publications, and you can cut the data a bunch of different ways. I don't know if this is the prettiest way, but this is a fairly straightforward way, and one of the first ways we cut the data. Basically, you see in a, in a lot of different ways to cut the data that the more democratic you are, sorry, the polity score indicates more democratic countries to the right, more authoritarian countries to the left. The more democratic you are, on average, the, the smaller your share of AI research within CS. The more authoritarian you are, the bigger the AI share within CS. Now, the, the last thing I want to show you is, is sort of macro-micro, a, a bit of a mix, which is what this translates into as a private sector product. So is it the case that authoritarian countries produce the best products in the world on the market, not just for their governments? So one you know, glance at that is to look at this face recognition vendor test. So this is something organized in the US, National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, and it's sort of this, this very you know, elite and highly recognized AI competition. Basically, it's a test of which product is best at matching faces successfully without mistakes. And this is the ranking from, from 2018. These are the top 10 products um, in the world at matching faces. Now, what do we see from these top 10 products in the world at matching faces? These are the country of origins. China dominant, Russia also there. The US and Israel, two places where it's also clear that there's an alignment between certain coercive institutions um, and the private sector. The Israeli military and the US military and intelligence complex, respectively. Um, this, this, to me, is, is, is a powerful result that coercive power in the state, of course, is, is using technology for its own purposes. It's not the case that, that these technologies aren't useful for the Chinese state, the Russian state, America's intelligence services, and Israel, respectively. But they're not only useful for the military. These are the best products on the market, and they are widely, widely used in the private sector. The companies that develop these products, like MegV, are worth billions of dollars um, on the market today. Okay, micro-level evidence. Um, so now thinking about sort of the within-firm tests 
um, that, that I, I suggested before. Is it going to be the case that, that getting a government contract seems crucial for the development of new products, new innovations? Um, this, is, this is where we're going to go. So, so one of the cool parts of this project, and, and I'll say again, it's ongoing, it's relatively early stage, um, is trying to construct some amazing data sets on China's high-tech firms, um, their product development and their patenting. Um, so we have two different sources there that, that we've had some, some truly remarkable computer scientists um, help us collect data from. Uh, Tianyan Cha, which is um, a, a database on Chinese firms and, and lists their, their new products, their patents, their trademarks, um, and then PitchBook as well, um, which is really focused on, on early stage um, VC-backed startups. Um, from those data sets, we're able to pull out 308 um, seemingly independent facial recognition firms. So we'll focus a lot of our research you know, today and then you know, going forward on facial recognition AI, um, in part because it's, it's very easily classifiable as a technology that is very data intensive, where the data is clearly in, in, in large supply um, in certain government bodies, in particular police forces, um, and, and where there are clear private sector applications. Um, so we, for now, given that, that this is sort of a first pass at the data, we'll focus on these, these facial recognition firms, um, and, and we take some care to try to make sure that we really identify independent firms, um, because sometimes that's complicated. Um, the other very cool data set that we have that I think could be actually much more widely used um, by economists and, and political economists um, is, is data on, on procurement contracts in China. Um, so since 2015, essentially all procurement contracts are posted online um, and the data can relatively easily be collected. Um, and we've been collecting um, you know, these millions of contracts and then starting to, to get the data in useful form. Not all of it is yet in useful form, um, but for now you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna focus on sort of two categories police and security is one, and sort of everything else is another. So police and public security um, are, are relatively straightforward to code. We use a variety of sort of machine learning algorithms ourselves to do this. Um, by ourselves, I mean not me, I mean computer scientists who know what they're doing. Um, and, and our application of, of our, our machine learning algorithm gives us sort of the, the, the predicted content of the, of the contract. So far, we're able to classify these, these police contracts very well. Um, and so the idea will be, look at what happens when a firm gets a police contract, where we think the availability of data will be very, very high, versus other types of contracts where we think you still kind of get the government endorsement and probably capital. Um, and certainly government connections, but you don't get access to the same sort of data that you have when you get a police contract. Sort of the next step, as I said, is to try to get some more information on public security cameras. Um, the cool thing about that, I will say, is that the distribution of security cameras isn't perfectly correlated with market size, for example. So it's not the case that, that Shanghai and Beijing have you know, all of the security cameras in China. In fact, places like Xinjiang, which don't have a very big market, have a ton of cameras and therefore a ton of data. Um, so we can talk more about that uh, in the Q&A. So this is kind of what the, the procurement contracts look like. They allow us to, to at least for now, what we'll, what we'll focus on is the identity of the firm and the date of the, of the first contract that a firm receives. Um, and here I'm just gonna show you sort of graphs 
plotting for you quarter by quarter from five years before a firm gets a contract to five years after. This is an unbalanced panel. For those who, who are worried about it, you know, talk about that more later. Um, the results look you know, the same regardless of, of how you slice the data or limit the sample. Um, but broadly, what you see is that prior to getting the first government contract, firms aren't disproportionately producing a lot of new software products. Um, about a year to two years after they get a government contract, new products take off. Broadly consistent with, with our story. Um, when you look at patenting, the lag is a little bit longer, but again, there, there's essentially nothing in, a, in, in the years before getting a government contract, and two to three years after getting a contract, there's, there's a big jump. Now, importantly, these are both police contracts. You get a police contract, after a couple of years lag, you produce new products, you produce new patents. What happens when you get a non-police government contract? Well, basically things are much, much flatter. As you can see, they're a little bit noisier, but new software products are basically you know, flat and indistinguishable from zero for the most part, and new patents, again, are, are going nowhere with the exception of one kind of random uh, point there. Um, but it seems like getting a police contract is crucial to what firms are doing afterward in, in the same direction as, as what we'd predict from our framework. To, to dig into what's going on a little bit more deeply, um, I'll show you sort of case evidence from a few firms. So, so we're working on coding the specific nature of the software products in more detail. We're working on coding the patents in more detail. We're not ready yet to, to show all, all the data. It's taking a long time. But for the three biggest firms, um, facial recognition firms, we've coded the type of software contract um, and so we can separately distinguish between jumps that are driven by government software products versus private sector co software contracts. Um, so we're going to categorize software into these two categories, public security applications um, versus commercial applications. So what happens after a firm gets a government contract? Well, in, among these three firms, just to be clear, they're the largest firms in China. By, by market share, they're huge. Um, but what you can see is after several quarters, in fact, you know, within a year of receiving their first government contract, these big firms begin to produce more private sector software. Now, what's the nature of, of this, this product development? Is there crowd out? Has that crowded out public sector development or government product development? No. The government product development, the, the public security products, are kind of following the same spiky path they were following before, consistent with our story about non-rivalry. Um, what, do, what do patents look like? I mean, this is, this is very, very suggestive, as you can tell. This is a case study of, of one firm now um, from SenseTime. Just to give you a sense of what we might be able to do. So these patents list what's being done um, in, in, a new, in a new technology. In, in uh, early 2016, methods and systems to detect objects in video, methods and systems to detect human figures, very, very useful for getting a, a contract with a police uh, agency, and in 2017, the first major procurement contract um, for sense time, uh, the Shenzhen police. Then, a year later or so, you have not, not just new patents, but, but we think in a very cool sense, new patents that are related to, to the use of data. Um, that, and, and this is the first time that SenseTime is developing patents that, that use the word data in them. This is totally suggestive. Again, like I, I, I want to be clear and, and I want to have high standards. Um, but I think that, that the suggestive evidence is very interesting. Um, and this is supposed to indicate sort of where further work can be done. Um, finally, 
um, looking at, at sort of the labor market allocation. What, what fields do elite researchers specialize in? Is it the case that, that researchers from more authoritarian countries differentially specialize um, in fields that, that require more repugnant data? Um, so what we've done, again, sort of using a lot of machine learning, um, is classify US computer science dissertations at the top 100 um, institutions. And we classify them into different subfields within AI. So this is not about just sorting into AI. It's within, within AI. Are you writing a dissertation on facial recognition, essentially, as opposed to other, other elements of AI that aren't as intimately linked to potentially repugnant data, neural networks, natural language processing, search, and so on? Um, so this is just regression evidence, um, and, and what, what the regression evidence is, is telling you essentially, column one, the baseline rate of working uh, on facial recognition, conditional on working within AI, is about 22%. If you're a Chinese author, as we can classify you using our, our, our machine learning, you have about a three per percentage point greater likelihood of, of working on facial recognition, which is, which is pretty big relative to the baseline, so 15% effect. Um, now, is that because Chinese uh, students are, are writing dissertations at a time when, when facial recognition is hot? Or they go to institutions where facial recognition is the major field? No, we can control for which university you're getting your degree at. We can control for which year you're getting your, your degree in. Chinese students are still more likely to work on facial recognition. And that's even true controlling for a Chinese advisor, which itself has a positive effect on working on facial recognition. Um, this is true even before 2000 when, when you didn't even have much of a sense of what this market would look like, suggesting that maybe there's some element for norms and preferences. Okay, so what are the policy implications to wrap up? You know, the, the first is, and, and these, these all have an element of important social, economic, and political trade-offs that we face. Um, to the extent that we care about privacy, we face a trade-off between preserving our privacy by passing regulation um, and collecting a lot of data or making available a lot of data to firms. Um, so San Francisco um, has banned facial recognition technology, um, interestingly. When you think about what firm behavior looks like and how firms choose to develop new technologies, collect data, um, this is you know, an, an article that, that touches on many abuses at, at Facebook, um, but there are many articles these days expressing em employees' concerns with the ethics of their firms, and in particular, their firm's use of data. If it's hard for Facebook to hire the best American talent by extracting and exploiting as much data as it can, will it back off certain types of data collection? Will that affect its innovative path forward? Um, it's an important consideration. Um, finally, when you think about even sort of international political economy and, and our approach to international human rights, um, there, there are sort of interesting and, and surprising trade-offs that we face. So this is um, an Economist article that describes the, the U.S. blacklisting um, Chinese artificial intelligence firms from doing business in the U.S. But one of the things that I, I found you know, so, so ironic about this was embedded within the article is the following line. The Commerce Department banned American firms from selling software and hardware to 20 public security organs. So the American firms are losing access to Chinese data in, in Xinjiang. The Chinese firms are losing access to American data. Like, which set of firms gets hurt more? 
I would argue the American firms are getting hurt much more by this sort of you know, blacklist and, and em, sort of embargo combination than the Chinese firms. Chinese firms don't need American data. American firms could benefit a lot from Xinjiang data. Of course, that would be you know, morally challenging um, to, to engage in that sort of behavior. The downside, though, of, of not engaging in that morally challenging behavior of, of working in Xinjiang is that you leave all of that Xinjiang data in the hands of the least moral firms. And, and so it's, it's, it's ethically and economically challenging. Um, so sort of what, what is, is the punchline in a way? The punchline to me, and, and this is something that, that Shoshana Zuboff um, develops nicely in, in her more sociological book, Surveillance Capitalism. Um, you know, I have a, a slightly different disciplinary approach to this, um, but, but there's reason to be concerned that data-intensive innovation and the rise of AI will tend to support powerful incumbent firms and incumbent political institutions, including authoritarian states. That is a potential danger that... I think forces upon us the, the challenge of figuring out how we can innovate in this incredibly important area um, and how we can do so competitively while still maintaining some amount of open economic access and open inclusive economic institutions as well as inclusive political institutions. Why is that important? Well, first, economically, there may be reason to think that too much concentration of, of economic power has its downsides. There's one argument that says having these very, very large firms with huge data sets generates economies of scale that'll be the most efficient firms in their setting. But there are other arguments that say that too much concentration um, may actually be a bad thing. And so preserving some free and open economic playing field could be crucial economically. But I would say more importantly, not for non-economic reasons that even if we're paying a cost on, on innovation, we may very well feel that it's crucial to preserve open access political and economic institutions um, in order to preserve the, the political rights um, and, and the social society and civil society that we have. Um, and we care about that per se, not, not just for its economic, uh, for its economic impact. We, we appreciate democracy, many of us, even if it does not always cause growth. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you very much. No, very stimulating. I've got lots of, lots of thoughts and questions. But let's open up to the audience. Is there a roving mic? Is there a roving mic here? Okay, so you can put your hands up if you want to. And could you actually say who you are um, when you ask a question? Gentleman there in the middle. question. Um, I, I know less about that um, than you might want. Um, my, my reading as 
sort of an interested observer um, is that there exists still some controversy over just how big a leap quantum computing will be. So IBM, you know, retorts that, you know, we're not talking about many orders of magnitude faster computation. Um, my sense is, you know, it, it could very well be an important advance to complement the use of data um, and the availability of data. Um, I, so, so let me say it could be an important complement. It's not obvious to me that Google's sort of first mover advantage will crowd out China in that space at all. I think China's actually invested a lot in quantum computing as well. Um, and so I, I'm not yet convinced, you know, one, that, that this is going to be an absolute game changer for AI in the first place. And, and I'm also not convinced it'll be a differential sort of game changer for the US or China. Um, but, but this, you know, I think it's, it's very much an open space. Yes, over there in the gray jumper. Hello, I'm David, and thank you very much for coming and giving this talk. I'm curious about whether there's priorities in both states, be it the authoritarian and the democratic, if we're going to create that binary, of what data is collected and what it ultimately is pushed towards in terms of the products that it produces. Because we've talked a lot about authoritarian regimes prioritizing surveillance mechanisms. We haven't necessarily spoken about what non-authoritarian, quote-unquote, democratic institutions yeah. encourage. And so it's a question of what do those AI processes produce, and if you want to talk about a Hegelian move towards freedom, whether those market solutions ultimately convince people on the other side to come over. Uh, great, great question. Um, you know, I, I think one, you know, slight, so, you know, you, you might hope that in countries like the UK and the US, we're applying our, our AI technology toward, you know, higher purposes in, from, from our normative perspective um, than monitoring people um, in a police state. Um, and, and I think we are. Um, I, I would expect to see much more AI developed and targeting, you know, healthcare type issues um, in the U.S., for example, where you have, you know, a, a, a very large healthcare sector um, and potentially big gains. Um, but, but so, I think there 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 are differences in the orientation. But the the repugnance point and the valuation of privacy and the way data are treated. I think is more sort of universally different across these societies. So when you think about like, you know, how controlled is healthcare data? How controlled is genetic data? Um, I think China is much more relaxed across the board, meaning that, that if you want to do research on, on, you know, genetic AI, predicting disease based on genes, if you want to do, you know, AI development in general with, with health data, I, I, I don't know this for a fact. I mean, maybe there are some people here who, who could even be better placed to answer this than, than I am. But my guess is if you had the right connection in China, you would get access to more very private data that would be really valuable than you could very easily in the US or the UK. So there are some databases that have been made available for, for certain sort of health research in the US. Um, but but it's by no means sort of open just because you know it, it seems to be serving like a, a higher purpose from from a Westerner's perspective. Uh, yes, lady at the front here. Hello, um, my name is Injun. I'm a graduate student in the International Relations Department. 
Um, my question is, if we're moving towards a world where like like technologies are going to become more data driven, right? Like AI, blockchain, etc. Um, and we see that there is a role that technology plays in a country's dominance and its like international relations aspects. What do you think this gap um, between democratic and authoritarian governments are going to do in terms of like their positions and their global power politics? Yeah, I mean, I think it, to me it's, it's clear that a natural implication of, of what I've described is that China will become economically more powerful. Um, I, I think that it will become more productive, as I said, kind of across a range uh, of different sectors. Um, one thing that, that you know, is important to note is that AI is also socially and economically quite destabilizing. Um, and so it's not the case that AI just makes life easy and makes everybody richer in some you know, nice, uniform way. Um, it may introduce sort of social and political challenges and economic inequality um, that might be very challenging, more, in some cases more challenging for China um, than the US. That, that's possible. So when, when you think about sort of the, the role of AI shaping geopolitics kind of in the medium run, this is obviously very speculative, um, but you can imagine AI developing more quickly in China that will tend to make China more competitive, richer, arguably more powerful. Um, but that also means that, that the challenges of, of dealing with AI-driven economic disruption might hit China earlier and harder. Um, and then there's a question of, you know, does a more authoritarian state deal with that sort of disruption better or worse than a more open democratic state? And I think there you could probably make arguments in, in different directions. There's a question at the back, I think. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jean. I'm a researcher in mathematics at UCL. Uh, and I was wondering about the significance of some of the data you've talked about in the, um, in the uh, macro uh, part of the talk at the beginning. Uh, when you talk about the, the, the quality of, say, facial recognition as done by the National Institute of Standards, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard without knowing the units of those, of those numbers, but it seemed that with even those first 10, there was not significant differences in the quality of the work by all of these. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to know if 10 was some sort of arbitrary choice for cutting off the data, or if later, on, if it's the spot where you actually see that whoever's below is really lower in quality, and if it's not the case, what happens, uh, wh where is that cutoff, and do we still see this trend of Chinese companies? Um, no, great, great question. Uh, the 10 is, is an arbitrary cutoff because of David Letterman, um, and you know, some of you might understand the reference, um, others not. And uh, the, the, the quality differences, I should know, know sort of better how that maps into, let's say, market share. I mean, I, I do think with many of these technologies, um, it's very, very bang, bang in the sense that you say you're the best, you get people to adopt your product, then you get a bunch of, of data and your product just gets even better. And so, you, but, but I'm not sure if those bang, bang results have always been, you know, number one versus number two, you know, obviously not because all, all of those companies actually have successful market products out there. Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't have a great mapping um, right now. There's a question at the front here, gentlemen in the blue anorak. Hi, thanks for the talk. I actually corresponded with you two days ago on email. I'm Elvin. Um, regarding the astonishing poverty reduction in China, could you talk a little bit about that in relation to today's topic, the 
government data, private sector, AI. And um, further to that, you also just mentioned that they could, this could bring about um, challenges to social progress. Maybe also a little bit on that. Thank you. Sure. Um, no, great, great question. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, so, some of the, the data collection and data processing has an element of like low-skilled labor demand. Um, so there are large armies of people that also are helping you know, develop sort of the, the initial training data sets in China. So, so not all sort of pure machine learning or AI is really pure machine learning and AI when you dig into what some of these firms do. Sometimes it's, it's AI with like armies of low-skilled people sort of behind the technology or something that is the technology. Um, when, when, and, and there have been some scandals about this actually um, at, at times. So I, for now, you know, I, I would say um, it seems to be the case that, that AI can replace workers kind of across the, the, the spectrum of, of tasks from very, very low-skilled tasks, drivers and so on, um, to, to higher-skilled tax, tasks like you know, potentially some doctors, some lawyers, and so on. Um, in that sense, it will have maybe a broader impact than just affecting you know, one particular group. I'm not sure that it, it only sort of affects the low-skilled and therefore leads to, to sort of a, 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 an uprising from, from the lower tail of the distribution. Um, in that sense, I think that the challenges are, are potentially unprecedented um, in that we could see you know, people having their, their jobs replaced at much higher skill levels than we've seen before. Um, and and that, that means social problems that we haven't really encountered before. So, I mean, I, you know, for now I would say many of, of these large data intensive firms, um, because of the economies of scale in, in the use of data and the production of these algorithms, um, those economies of scale tend to produce very, very large powerful firms that also tend to support inequality. They tend to make the very, very rich much richer. Um, they, they don't tend to support the poor. Um, as I said, there, there is some of this demand for, for the very poor as an input into, into AI. That, I don't think, is, is going to, to be the predominant factor. I think the main question is how will we deal with the social change that arises from, from replacement, essentially, across the occupational spectrum. Uh, so two questions, uh, lady in the white top, then something in front afterwards. Hi, my name is Abby. I study computer science and international relations at UCL. A lot of your examples, almost all of them, were drawn from China. I'm wondering what data you have on how this would generalize to authoritarian regimes as diverse as Russia, Iran, Saudi, or even African autocracies. Um, Great question. Um, right now we have like essentially zero, um, but we would love to, to look into it. Um, yeah, I think one thing that, that we are working on is, is looking at like these, these researcher sort of human capital uh, allocation decisions. So, so how do PhD researchers allocate their, their skills across subfields in computer science? Um, and, and we've been able to get very, very good machine learning algorithms to identify Chinese names. Um, we're working on, on getting algorithms that will predict names from these other places, and so I think, I think that will be quite interesting. Um, in terms of the, the firm-level data, um, 
you know, sort of one step at a time, but, but we think it's, it's potentially an important next step. Blonde gentleman, the blonde gentleman there in the uh, cream top, I believe. Um, the question before last, we touched on uprising. Um, I guess my first premise is for every reaction, there tends to be a, uh, how have I done that the right way around? For every action, there's a reaction. Um, and if there's this huge drive for gathering data. Um, and we've seen in Hong Kong, there's been resistance to say the mask ban. Have you seen any evidence of this in China, uh, perhaps data poisoning? And were those to happen, how would the state overcome that? You might want to say a word or two in your Hong Kong research as well, if you... Sure, sure. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, about Hong Kong's protests as well. It's actually, you know, something I spent much of the last five years and, and I'm still thinking about a lot. Um, the drivers of, of the protest movement there, how it's varied across time, um, including into, into the recent years. Um, I think that um, it's, it's, you know, in, in my view... Um, a big contributor to the intensity of, of the action in Hong Kong has been a clear shift um, in the nature of China's one-party government um, in, in, under the current uh, Xi administration. Um, and so I think that um, Hong Kong, as I said, even five years ago, wasn't a place where many people were pushing for democratic institutions. People weren't pushing um, for a separate independent Hong Kong, and people were certainly you know, nowhere near you know, violent um, while they were protesting. The, the need for independence um, and you know, the, the willingness to, to resort to violence is much, much greater when you face um, a, an authoritarian regime um, like Xi Jinping's um, that, that is you know, in, incredibly um, sort of monolithic in its power um, that is, that, that's disregarded um, sort of constitutional constraints even to the extent that they existed within the Communist Party, taking an extra term um, when his predecessors did not. Um, and, and when you have a regime um, that very clearly has, has used you know, an, an incredible encroachment on human rights um, in places like Xinjiang to try to control populations that, that, are, that are restive and potentially threatening. Um, Hong Kong, you know, does not want to give an inch um, to allow, you know, something like Xinjiang to happen there. And, and that, the, 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 the possibility that that could happen, you know, didn't look very likely five years ago. It looks more and more likely um, as we learn more about this monitoring state that's been produced in, in Xinjiang. Um, and it's a monitoring state that, that seems unlike any that, that's ever existed, um, entirely you know, oriented around data collection, monitoring, prediction. Um, so in that sense, you know, there, there's clearly a reaction in Hong Kong. Um, now within China, the truth is I, I get very little sense that there's much pushback. Um, now now that, that doesn't mean that people are happy to be you know, living under a one-party state, let alone happy to live with, with Xi Jinping as, as president as long as he wants. Um, but, but, you know, it is to say that, that people have become accustomed to a status quo of a great deal of monitoring there. Um, and I think given that status quo, the, the amount of private service provision based on monitoring now is quite remarkable. So it, it really does feel a little bit like you know, we were always paying the cost. Now we're at least getting some, some pretty cool benefits from it. And it feels a little bit like the future. 
And, and if you can kind of convince yourself that this is an acceptable future because things are stable and you have these amazing technologies that make you live a little bit like, or feel like you're living in the future, um, that can start to feel quite comfortable. And, and some of that might be like really compartmentalizing the lack of political rights. Um, some of it might be despite the lack of political rights. Um, yeah, but, but you, you, you definitely don't feel it in, in the overt sense because I think the, that it's, it's taken as such a given that there will be monitoring, um, that, that it's not an encroachment or a potential encroachment the way it is in Hong Kong. So I'm going to abuse my chair position by asking uh, sure. a question, which, you know, I was running through my thoughts as, as you were going through now, which, you know, in, in one level, of course, what you're saying is extremely worrying because it suggests that with the nature of AI, that's going to cement China's power yeah. in the world and you know, other autocracies. But it, it kind of, um, it made me, has, I said, a sense of deja vu. Mm. So back in the 1930s, when you know, Friedrich von Hayek was, uh, was here and writing, you know, there was a big debate between capitalism and communism, and people at that point were looking to the Soviet model as one where they thought would also dominate the world. And one of the reasons they thought that was the case was the incredible economies of scale that you had in the manufacturing sector. And by yep. mobilizing resources and very large units, that was a much more, going to be a much more efficient way of making use of those economies of scale, maybe internalizing externalities. Of course, things didn't quite turn out, but I won that argument in some sense. And I wonder whether we may, you know, in some yeah. ways exaggerate the importance of economies of scale and underestimate some of the diseconomies of scale. Yeah. And that kind of leads on to a second reason why AI may not have the same impacts as powerfully as quickly as some of us think. Again, think back to the other debates over general purpose technologies like electricity or indeed computers. The impact of those took many years, sometimes decades, to have an effect. And one of the reasons for it is it wasn't just about the technology. It was about the people took a long time to learn the best way to use those new types of technologies. Definitely. It turns out that the use of those involves having to innovate, reorganize, in the case of electricity, yeah. reorganize yeah. the way yeah. we did factories and productions, maybe change our management practices, the skills we needed. And those actually may be much easier to do in more flexible decentralized democratic societies and autocratic societies. So yes. I know whether you have thoughts um, on that or whether you think, you know, that might be a kind of some counterweight to the rather definitely. depressing narrative. Definitely. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's, that's a great point. Um, and, and right now, sort of our, our, our initial challenge sort of conceptually was to, to build a coherent model where an authoritarian state could do better um, than, than a non-authoritarian one, given sort of where we started as a status quo, where there are all of these drags on authoritarian growth, what might lead to an authoritarian advantage. But I think that, that we have to build in these elements as well. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think the, the possibility, um, you know, first, that these economies of scale are, are less important than we think. Um, in particular, I think with this, with the possibility that, that like non-rival data, if it becomes sort of widely available, then, then the possibility for new firms to use that data and innovate and, and kind of be in, in a more open environment, um, that, that could very well be more likely to occur in a Western society than, than in, in China. Um, I would also say, 
sort of that, that much of, of the benefit from AI is in applications. And so um, what, what that means, and that, that's kind of what you're, you're suggesting, it's like a general purpose technology shifts the frontier for, for many different sectors. What I described was an alignment between AI firms and the authoritarian state, but for these potential you know, adopters of AI technology, they're not necessarily aligned. And so you, you do have some of the same potential drags on, on other firms um, in China that you would in, in more standard models of, of why authoritarian states may grow less quickly. Um, and I think this point about, in, in particular, sort of how disruptive technologies take hold and whether that interacts with politics, I think, I think that's a, a great question. Um, I think the way the, the Chinese might answer it is, you know, disruption often requires, you know, really, really decisive, you know, shifts and coordination that can be done better by the authoritarian state. So if you want to build Silicon Valley, let's build a bunch of high-speed trains to a new city that we're gonna build and, and subsidize a ton of AI innovation you know, in Shenzhen. Like, let's build a new Silicon Valley in Shenzhen and if we need to, to move people out of the way, let's build whatever high-speed trains and infrastructures we need to build and make it happen. You try to build a high-speed train in the Bay Area, doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not someone here saying authoritarian states are going to take over. And, and you know, it's, it's more, you know, I start with the status quo that I think authoritarian states will face these drags. I, I entirely agree that, that one of the potential drags is how do you deal with adjustment? And one type of adjustment is the economic one. The other is the social one that comes from people losing their jobs and so on. That, that you know, again, like playing devil's advocate, I can imagine what um, a, a Chinese Communist Party sympathizer would say about those things, and, and they would tell stories where the CCP is somehow better able to address these challenges um, than you know, the American Congress with all of its infighting or the British Parliament. But, but I also see many strong arguments why, why Western institutions would actually be much more flexible. Um, and in particular, if somebody is extraordinarily angry at the Chinese Communist Party, they don't have an electoral path toward expressing that, that anger. They only have the path of going to the streets. And, and that, that, again, going back to Hong Kong, if, if I can add, um, you know, five years ago, the people of Hong Kong sort of took to the streets saying, like, we don't want to have to take to the streets anymore to express our dissatisfaction. Give us the right to, to elect our chief executive um, and our legislative council. And, and if we have that right, that gives us an electoral way to express our dissatisfaction and potentially change policy. And, and the Chinese Communist Party you know, did, did not grant that right. Um, they granted a very you know, incomplete version of that, just to be clear. They offered something, but nowhere near complete um, rights of, of, of democratic selection. In the absence of those democratic selection rights, all of these social and political challenges become much, much harder to resolve um, because the only path is, is through violence. Um, so I, I think that that, is, that that is a reason why we may end up, you know, having the more flexible and effective system. It's interesting that no one's built a Silicon Valley um, anywhere but Silicon Valley, really. It's true. It's true. Although Shenzhen is, is super productive. I mean, Shenzhen, as, as you know, I, I would say, you know, my, my, my sense for people, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, what they're now calling the Greater Bay Area, um, which, which, you know, then Donald Trump, maybe if he ever gets support in California, he'd, he'd call the San Francisco Bay Area the greatest <laughs> Bay Area. Um, but Don't believe the hype. We've got lots and lots and lots of hands up. Um, I might just gather a few questions up, just so we have enough. So, so do we start off with at the front? in the uh, boiler room t-shirt. 
take this all through. Sure. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, my name is Lawrence. I'm a data science student here at the LSE. Um, your talk was very much focused on um, facial recognition technology, computer vision within AI. And I think your evidence is quite compelling that uh, China will outperform other countries in terms of computer vision. There wasn't much on other AI-related topics, so the natural language processing. Yeah. How do you think about that? How um, will China perform in, in other term or other sectors of AI compared to other countries? Who else was up? Um, another black-shirted guy behind. <laughs> LSE top. Thank you for your talk. I really enjoyed it. My name's Cole. I'm a first-year undergraduate management student at LSE. Uh, my question is, considering the advantages that you discussed for authoritarian regimes in terms of data collection and innovation in that sector, how vulnerable do you believe American tech firms are to competition from China? Okay. Non-facial recognition AI and tech firms in yeah. China competition. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I, if I had amazing answers for this, I, w I would have a, a better consulting career, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, so, no, I, I, don't, I, I don't have complete and amazing uh, answers, in, in part because I don't have quite enough sort of sectoral um, sort of expertise. What I would say, sort of speaking as an economist, um, you know, where, where are there sort of similar tasks, um, sort of similar economics of production? So first thinking about, about other, other elements of, of AI, um, you know, is it the case that, that China has more text? Um, and is it the case that China is throwing, you know, more people and resources at processing text? Um, you know, I would say the answer is probably yes. Um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, um, given the nature of sort of microblog censorship, um, if China could develop um, sort of you know other forms of, of AI that are very powerful out of partnerships between the state and, and private firms. Um, so I think some of this ought to generalize, and, and the way it would generalize would essentially be like: Are there categories of data where the government has a clear interest? has a, you know, a clear ability to collect massive amounts of data, um, and is it partnering with private firms to do so? Um, you know, one thing that, that relates also to, to competition with the U.S. Um, and, and relates also to natural language processing, I mean, there, there is some you know, friction in, in going from you know, the, the, the Chinese you know, characters to you know, Western text. That doesn't mean Chinese firms couldn't do it. A lot of the technology seems, seems to, to translate. Um, but at least certain things you know, may involve friction. So, so, you know, for one thing, facial recognition works well when you have, you know, a, a large database of the relevant faces. If the Chinese government has a lot of faces of people in Xinjiang, that may not be so useful in, in developing sort of a payments app using American faces, for example, um, given also, you know, differences in, in like ethnic and racial composition of, of the two populations. Um, I would also say, you know, when, when you look at, at the, the sort of market division between China and the West, it, it is the case that in many of these really important data-intensive sectors, in the private sector, you have an American version and you have a Chinese version, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Google. Um, you know, there is no 
Chinese equivalent that's active on the mainland. Um, or, so no, 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 just to be clear what I meant. The, the American version is not working on the Chinese mainland, and therefore there is a Chinese version that is a Chinese, you know, a Chinese equivalent um, that is incredibly successful um, in the mainland, and only every now and then begins to, to really meaningfully affect um, the American marketplace. Um, so, you know, Alibaba obviously has, has some impact on, on, you know, quite a lot of impact, in fact, on American tech companies. Um, but, you know, there, there still seem, seem to be some barriers. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the main barrier that, that's arising in recent years is political economy. And I think that, that the concern that and any amount of, of data that you share with a Chinese tech company, whether it's a hardware provider um, or a software provider, um, is, you know, has, has no barrier between them and the Chinese government. You know, how true that is, I think, is, is very much, you know, kind of open to debate. I don't know how much data has actually been shared from private firms or, or a firm like Huawei um, to the Chinese government. Um, there's certainly fear that it's possible that, that any data could be, you know, could be uh, forced uh, open or forced out of these Chinese firms um, going to the Chinese government. And that narrative, more importantly, like how, how easy that would be for the Chinese state to achieve, um, I don't think we really know. But we do know that that narrative is, is very compelling um, and has absolutely terrified um, foreign governments and, and many foreign consumers, I would say. Okay. Um, so we start off here. The health of the beer, and then take a couple more. Sure. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I was kind of curious to what extent you think Chinese advantage in this area is conditional on sort of continued integration into the global economy and if say trade conflict the current trade conflict with the US were to significantly worsen or say even military conflict or just kind of this deep globalization that people talk about whether that would have an effect okay so uh, <coughs> two in the middle for them. Coming to you first, so you, you go first and then okay. pass, it, pass it to your left afterwards. Hi, I'm Vincent. I'm a, a graduate student at the LSE. So it's increasingly a common view that data favors tyranny. Um, what this view neglects is that there is, in fact, tremendous democratic potential uh, in big data. And as you state toward the end of your remarks, we cannot afford to cede this area of research mm. to authoritarian states. So my question is, how can data and data processing techniques be used to revive or bolster democratic and egalitarian ideals? I'm particularly interested in what you think of Raj Chetty's research on the quality of opportunity in the U.S., for example. Okay, and then I think there's another question just to your left. Yeah, thank you. Um, my name's Oren. I spent quite a bit of time in China, and I just came back from Xinjiang two weeks ago. Um, the amount of resources that they're putting in into facial recognition, into surveillance, into cameras, um, maybe implementing it to squash a place like Hong Kong is feasible because Hong Kong is a very small place, and you know, you in Hong Kong you have a society that's living in these estates, in these very small apartments, in an economy that lacks opportunity. Um, with China growing in a slower pace, um, slowing down. People getting a bit sick of their BMWs and moving into Volvos. Uh, how do you expect 
um, this kind of technology to help China prevent any uprising um, coming down from a slowing economy. Okay, and did you want a question as well? That's, that's okay, so this <laughs> okay. questions on uh, trade wars, data yeah. to revive democracy, yeah. and China's slowdown and uprising. Um, yeah, all, all great questions. I mean, I, I think my, my take on the trade war is a little bit like my, my comment on, on this embargo of, of doing business in China. Um, China is a huge marketplace with a lot of available data. I think that these tech companies um, will, will have, and, and with, with a, a consumer population, by the way, also, as we've discussed, that, that is very tolerant of what some in the West would think of as, as a potential privacy invasion. Um, so I think a lot of what I've discussed isn't really that reliant on international trade, um, although I would say that, that China's ability to become sort of economically and politically more powerful internationally will, will to a large extent, depend on how much it can export. Is, is this going to be China's big export to the rest of the world? Um, I, so, so I think um, in the short run, I think these forces sort of dominate the, the trade war, um, and, and I, I don't see China getting hurt in, in this particular sphere relative to the U.S. I think probably again vice versa. Um, in terms of um, democratic potential from from AI and machine learning, um, no, I mean surely that that's that's true. And so this is where where you know I, I think I, I was trying to, to think about like what are the higher callings to which we can put AI. Um, and, and many of those higher callings are in public service provision, in the provision of health, in helping people solve behavioral biases, um, and, and maybe in, in sort of collecting incredibly rich data that are super, super hard for individuals to parse, even hard for economists to model um, in, in an ex-ante way, and to use our, our data mining skills and machine learning skills to learn ex-post like, oh, it turns out that there are these pockets, as you say, um, that Raj Chetty has found, that, that we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have found it easy to specify you know, a linear model with a bunch of interactions that, that spit out you know, the, the right predictions there, or, or the same predictions with the same precision. Um, and so um, I think we can learn a lot. Um, and I, I think you know, there, there, are, there are reasons to think this will be utilized at least to, to quite a bit of social good. Um, I think there are also questions, though, about who controls the data, um, and and you know how excludable will this data be? If 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 the data, if the data are excludable, um, that will tend to to concentrate power. Um, now the question is, you know, in whose hands? If it's a public entity um, or an entity that has like a clear sort of public service mission, um, a nonprofit. Um, then that might be more conducive toward, toward certain uses of the data um, and distribution of the rents as opposed to large for-profits. Um, not to say that, that allocating the rights to for-profits would necessarily be, be harmful, um, but, but it requires thinking about how those for-profits sort of allocate the rents. Um, and then I would also say just as sort of a backstop, you, you know, even if we you know, don't mind very much large economic rents going to a small number of firms or individuals, um, I think the next question becomes how does that feed back into politics? Um, and so, you know, I, I think that, that the nature of sort of political competition in the U.S. 
seems to, you know, as, as one example that I, I know well, um, seems to be really shifting in, in a very corporate sort of oriented and, and sort of oligarchic um, sort of political system that seems like it may very well be reinforced um, by these incredibly large, productive, um, profitable firms. Um, and then I would say, you know, you know, part one is, you know, how distributed are the economic rents? Part two is how do economic rents get mapped into political outcomes? Um, and maybe, you know, one version of, of what we want to do is think about limiting the way that economic rents translate into political influence. Um, and then uh, the, the last question about, you know, could, could this sort of technology be used to prevent an uprising in China? I, I guess there, there are kind of two ways to think about that. One is an uprising is prevented when Chinese people are broadly happy. Um, and, and, you know, the suggestion was, well, you know, economic growth is slowing down. So, you know, the, the, the acquiescence to one party rule will, will be less likely as, as economic growth falls. Um, but to the extent that, that AI technology um, improves quality of life, improves quality of life, improves quality of life, like, I think that will help, um, along with bringing potential destabilization from job loss. So we, we need to think about that. So now, you know, going back to, to the, the second part of uprising, well, suppose people are unhappy um, and might be considering revolt. Um, man, I mean, being able to monitor people well predict their behavior well, is super useful for nipping any of that in the bud, one. Um, and two, it's super useful for limiting sort of social coordination um, and the rise of large-scale movements. And, and that's, that's doable in a few ways. One of the ways that China is, is certainly exploiting already um, is a development of, of these sort of social scores um, that, that are, are calculated by observing essentially everything you do. And if you look socially undesirable, because you know you co-author with me, uh, then you know you um, let's let's pretend. Um, then then other people won't want to spend any time with you because then they're very quickly going to have their social score fall. And if nobody spends time with you, your social influence declines, your ability to coordinate politically declines. And so you know much the same way that that you could use sort of censorship and online disruption um, to to prevent sort of organization online. Um, of, of sort of coordinated action, the social scores might even prevent you know any any incipient social interaction with people um, at, at that very first stage when you might meet someone um, because it's so costly um, to have your social score take the hit. Um, and so you know the ability to link data on your entire life um, with your ability to get a loan at a bank with your ability to get an apartment, with your ability to get into a school. Um, I mean, that, that is a powerful, powerful set of incentives um, that, that can be created out of, out of monitoring technology. So there's one, I mean, I, we lo I love to talk, so uh, do you want to have one last question? Okay, I think we'll have to unfortunately draw it to a conclusion there. Um, okay. Thanks everybody. So it's been a great pleasure for me, and I think everybody Thanks John, else in particular. Um, I've been asked to, um, you should have a feedback form which was on your seats. Um, please fill in the feedback form. And just like to thank everybody else for taking your time and busy schedule and give a yeah. big thanks. Now. Thank, thank you. Thanks, John.